So welcome everyone. My name is Jay. I'm the data privacy trainer at Infosec Tree, and uh, I have close to 11 plus years of experience, and I take all the data privacy courses of Infosec Tree, and <clears throat> and Infosec Train actually, and uh, my credentials include CIPPE, CIPM, and CIPT, and I'm also an FIP uh, accredited uh, person. <clears throat> I have uh, FIPT from Montrust also CISA and CSA star certification as well. So I'm just projecting my name in, uh, in the slide. If you want to connect with me through LinkedIn, I'm happy to connect with you all, okay? So I do consulting services and uh, uh, training is my passion. So I take weekend courses uh, of different IEPP certifications and I do consulting apart from that. And uh, if you have any questions, if you have any doubts, please feel free to connect with me. Happy to connect with you all. Yeah. So with that, we'll get started with our course content today. Right. I'm keeping very simple today. I'm just going to focus on the content. And uh, today's content is about CIPPE practice questions. And uh, part of this practice questions, I'm going to uh, discuss around <clears throat> around uh, 10 to 12 questions and apart from that I'm, I'm more focused in terms of sharing some more questions which probably whenever you start reading the exam you should have a better idea about right so this course let me maybe take a five minutes time to explain about CIPPE so that interest of uh, the new people who have joined in so that they understand so there are uh, different certifications uh, which are offered by IPP which includes your CIPPE, CIPM, and CIPT. So CIPPE, CIPP is Certified Information Privacy Professional, which is focused on uh, uh, the different uh, data privacy laws around the world. So Europe is GDPR, and apart from that, we have three more variants. One is focused on US, and the other is focused on the <coughs> Canada, and there's one for Asia. So, but we generally uh, handle the GDPR, which is the CAPPE. So that's the first variant. The second variant is CIPM, which is Certified Information uh, Privacy Managers. And this is the uh, course which speaks about the operationalizing a privacy program for an entity. So here we discuss how to build a privacy program from scratch. The first variant is about uh, understanding a law. And this course is about how do you operationalize a privacy program from scratch. And uh, these two combination actually goes very well. And this is what uh, as most sought out uh, combination for becoming a DPO. And the third variant is CIPT, which is Certified Information Privacy Technologist. The more technology comes uh, into our life, the role of data privacy technologist also is increasing. With the advent of AI, with the advent of different uh, technology uh, <clears throat> that's touching our life on a day-to-day -day basis, the role of privacy technologies is also becoming very important. And there is a lot of demand for this <clears throat> privacy technologist also. So, so part of that, we are also launching a, a course. Uh, we are starting our first CIPT batch uh, uh, very soon in about two weeks and also conducting a CAPT uh, session webinar next week. So if you're interested, you can join that as well. So this is about the overview of different data privacy certifications we have. I'm going to start with the very first question in terms of what is the time frame for reporting a personal data breach to the data subjects under GDPR? You would have seen this question come 
uh, uh, sort of different instances. So this is what is exactly needed in the exam, right? Patience and to ensure that you read each and every word which is mentioned there, right? When we see time frame reporting personal data breach, we are so biased that immediately we uh, jump into 72 hours, right? So the answer to this question is without undue delay, right? Uh, similarly, if a processor has to report, right, uh, a data breach to a controller, what is the timeline team? Aditi, yes, answer is without undue delay. See, uh, without undue delay means the, uh, what is mentioned in the law is that the moment they come, they are aware of the breach. Right. As soon as they confirm there is a breach, then they have to inform the controller as well. So you cannot spend time or maybe you cannot take uh, uh, make an undue delay informing the controller. So exam questions can be testing on these fronts. So I would be uh, uh, recommending you to look at these aspects. Whenever there is a personal data breach, try to have a broader view of what are the different questions can come from. Right. Not everyone, you should not be expecting that uh, straightforward 72 hours. Now, nowadays, even when you see internet, you can able to get this answer. Right. But exam is not going to test you on that. Exam is going to test your understanding. How do you apply a requirement? Right. So that's where I, I would say that you need to read the question clearly and then try to answer it. Uh, which of the following is not a requirement for obtaining a valid consent under GDPR? Question number two. So answer is C. So bundle consent is something which is not a requirement. So why I brought this question, although it's an easy question, it's a negative question, right? So this is another style of question that IAPP generally ask in the exam. Whenever you see the word not, uh, maybe when you, when you take the uh, exam like this way with uh, uh, 10 questions, 5 questions or 30 questions, you probably are much more tuned towards the exam right but when you are taking 90 questions in one go you will also experience this fatigue right that's where you start making those small mistakes of not uh, looking at the keywords properly so this keyword of not a requirement may get missed when you're giving uh, when you're giving the exam or maybe it comes at the 80th question right so that's that's the reason i brought this question though a little interesting <laughs> So bundle consent, what is bundle consent? So consent should never be coupled with your terms and conditions, right? So generally people make that mistake whenever you're trying to get a consent and the common mistake what people do is uh, clubbing the terms and conditions with the consent saying that I agree to the terms and condition is equivalent to consent as a lawful basis. It's entirely different. Consent as a lawful basis, lawful basis has a lot of difference. Uh, the reason is uh, consent has to ensure the attributes of consent, which is mentioned here freely given, specific and informed, and it has to be a unambiguous indication, right? So all these uh, all these elements has to be explicitly stated or uh, ensured whenever you are correcting consent as a lawful basis, right? So that's a mistake when when you club multiple uh, stuff into one terms and condition and you ask uh, consent that's not a valid consent that's bundle consent so bundle consent is what gdpr doesn't accept okay so i hope everyone is clear with that let's go to question number three <clears throat> a company is planning to use a cctv on its premises and it's concerned with gdpr compliance should it first do all the following except so answer is uh, A, okay, 
so if you are trying to do a cctv surveillance right so there is a good chance you may uh, uh, end up doing a dpia right so cctv surveillance falls one of the explicit triggers which requires you to do a dpia right so answer b is definitely will within the requirements of gdpr so you need to perform a data protection impact assessment so that's a right option so third one is create information retention policy for those who operate the system so this is something which is also required because if you are trying to assess the uh, the risk you should also address this and uh, part of the requirement you should generally have a clear retention period so this is also very much an acceptable action ensure the safeguards are in place to prevent unauthorized access to the footage so even part of the dpia or in general uh, protecting the information with the uh, uh, appropriate safeguard is something which is very much required even in dpa this is going to be highlighted if there is any lack of safeguards it's something which we have to highlight part of the risk and then it has to be mitigated part of the dpia right so that's something which is definitely required so why answer a is not a requirement in each and every case is that so for all the data protection uh, for all the data processing activity we don't need to inform the data protection authority okay so part of the earlier uh, version of the gdpr which we call it as 1995 directive over there we had this requirement where each and every processing activity has to be sort of uh, uh, mentioned with the authority right or it has to be recorded now that has been waived off in the gdpr that makes uh, there is no specific requirement for us to notify the data protection authority for each and every data processing activity so that uh, over it burdens uh, burdens of uh, in terms of intimating each and every processing activity has been removed in gdpr so this on uh, this makes answer a is something which is not required only when you see a high risk okay which is coming after your mitigating controls so again what people make mistake is at what point i will decide when i have to notify a data protection authority so data protection authority has to be notified which is a mandatory requirement when after you have identified certain risk part of the processing activity and you will also identify the mitigation measures so once the mitigation measures are identified and implemented and still you feel there is a good or high amount of residual risk what is a residual risk a risk that exists after controls are implemented then probably you cannot decide what to do with that processing activity right so in that case you need to reach out to the uh, supervisory authority to take their consultation whether should be go ahead with the activity or ask them to uh, advise on any other mitigation steps which they can implement otherwise the supervisory authority may inform to stop this activity completely so that's also a possibility that you should be aware of that's the reason we have this uh, requirement to notify the data production authority so why i'm explaining this getting a right answer is one part but understanding the rationale understanding the concept is even more important because the questions will keep changing every year so these questions are not exam questions or these question are not something which is there from the uh, what to say these are the expected uh, dumps or something like that nothing like that i generally prepare these questions uh, from <clears throat> from own words so these kind of questions get tested in the exam 
okay so these kind of questions comes in different formats once you understand the logic it becomes completely easy to get it get that get it right so question number 4 which of the following is a special category data under gpr <clears throat> okay so this is a tricky question okay why a biometric data cannot be a special category data does anyone know answer to this okay so biometric data is definitely a personal data in every single instance okay but a biometric data may not be a sensitive personal data on gdpr words we will say special category data uh, the the catch is that a biometric data when it can uniquely identify an individual only in those instances it may come under the category of sensitive personal data all right so this is something which is very important that for you to remember only when a biometric data can uniquely identify an individual it becomes a sensitive personal data right so that's the reason answer to this question is trade union membership answer is d so trade union membership always is a sensitive personal data without a doubt there because a trade union membership can lead to identifying a person's uh, philosophical belief or uh, his political opinion right that's why uh trade union membership definitely falls under a special category data correct all right <clears throat> let's go to question number 5 so why not b c and d because uh these are all operational activities right so operational activities is not part of uh, dpo so uh sometimes you may make a mistake that yes dpo has to be accessible to the data subjects that doesn't mean dpo is going to pick each and every one's call or dpo is going to respond to each and every data subject request so what happens is generally we give the mail id of data protection office so it's not belonging to an individual it belongs to the team right so what's the request from the gdpr is that you have to make the dpo accessible so which means if you write a email to that particular email id your request is going to be uh, heard or filed right so that means it is definitely coming to the purview of your data protection office so that's the reason we say that uh, making dpo accessible to the data subject is important so that doesn't mean the dpo is going to respond to each and every customer complaints right compiling records of processing activity conducting a data protection impact assessment it's all part of the team which he manages he or she manages right so that's something we have to keep it in mind and remember dpo is someone who cannot hold a position uh, which also has a, a, a role to take decisions on the purpose of processing or ways and means of processing so if he or she does that then it becomes a conflict of interest okay so that's again very important that you have to keep it in mind so that's why answer a which is the direct requirement from the gdpr to ensure compliance with the gdpr and advising on data protection matters right looks a straightforward answer but sometimes when you have a scenario question the simple words what you see might be twisted with some certain complex words so that makes it a little difficult okay Let's go to question number six. So I see a divided answer between A and D. Okay. 
So if you see the question, the, again the word except is there as a very last word. These are those tricky questions which makes you uh, make wrong answers. So if you see what are the permissible ways which you can do a third party or sorry third country transfer or international data transfer. So in general we have three options. One is your adequacy decision. Second is your appropriate safeguard. And third is your uh, derogations, right? So one of the derogation is the explicit consent. So when you have explicit consent, you can always transfer the data. There is no stopping of that, right? Apart from that, you have contract, uh, valid public interest, right? And also there is legitimate interest, which is also there, right? Now, adequacy decision is obviously with this, you can definitely transfer data. Option B is also a valid answer. Option C, by allowing data transfer only if adequate safeguards are in place. That's also a valid answer. So answer to this question uh, is answer D. Okay. Using data protection impact assessment, we don't transfer the data. So why we do data protection impact assessment for transfer? I think most of the people who made the mistake might have confused with transfer impact assessment. That's altogether different impact assessment. But this is DPIA. DPIA is done for different reasons where we have uh, specific requirements which are uh, which are mentioned as triggers for a DPIA in the law and what we are speaking now is the international data transfer right so international data transfer uh, requires uh, three important instruments using which you can transfer data first is your adequacy decision second is your appropriate safeguard third is your derogation so DPIA is not an instrument to do international data transfer so that's why the answer is D for question number six answer is D kudos to people who got it right in the first instance and people who got it A are you convinced so question number seven says again a negative sentence see of the mandatory obligations maintaining records of processing is a mandatory obligation appointing a DPO is also a mandatory obligation if their core business involves processing large volume of sensitive personal data implementing technical and organizational measures is also a processor so these are irrespective of controller processor role uh, sort of records of processing activity dpo and technical organization measures are common to both controller and processor which are uh, individual obligations i would say in gdpr right so these are all there for both controller as well as processor whereas if you do if you see uh, conducting dpia it's a only controller specific ask right a processor will only support a controller so you should not confuse as an organization you will also play the role of controller and processor whenever you are a processor you are only expected to support in terms of data gathering or support the uh, completion of DPIA the obligation of doing a DPIA reporting it as well as uh, submitting when, when it has been challenged this is all responsibility of a controller so answer is D seventh question answer is D so question seven is done let's go to question eight in question number eight there is a tricky option between A and D right I purposefully kept the confusion area between A and D, right? If someone is choosing A, why not D? So you should be confident of that as well. That is more important, isn't it? The correct answer is A, but why not D? 
actually uh, not really but in the law organization process sensitive personal data may not trigger a dpo appointment okay so if you see if your organization core business involves processing large volume of sensitive personal data so there is a lot of depth to that particular statement to what is mentioned here so if i just process one sensitive personal data do i need to appoint a dpo answer is no right so the actual definition what is mentioned in the law is very important for you to understand so organization core business involves la processing large volume of sensitive personal data right so that's something you need to keep it in mind before answering this question so that's why answer b is not the criteria as answer a is definitely a criteria okay so even if you are uh, getting it right uh, but uh, you need to know why option d is not the answer so that will give you a lot of confidence in answering other questions okay so question number 9 how do you determine scale uh question number 9 answer is pre tick check boxes are never acceptable under gdpr option is b the reason is implied consent or opt out consent is not accepted in gdpr it also it, it has always to be an explicit consent which means silence inactivity pre check uh, pre tick check boxes all these are not accepted in gdpr so the answer is b okay so that's a pretty easy one whoever is sort of gone through my sessions you very well remember that let's go to question number 10 so answer is c that's perfect so irrespective of your size in terms of revenue organization employees headquarters uh, your extra territorial scope only applies when you offer goods and services uh, when to the individuals in the eu or monitoring their behavior in the eu so in fact it's not just goods and uh, services it has to be a targeted goods and services just to add one more keyword which is not explicitly mentioned there but it has to be a targeted goods or services so what do you mean by targeted goods and services could also be tested in the scenario question so you need to know what do you mean by targeted goods and services okay if you need to answer that question i can explain this after the q and a if someone wants to understand what do you mean by a targeted goods or services or if you want me to explain extra territorial scope i will be happy to do that okay let's go to the final question question number 11 so the answer to this question is answer c pseudonymization retains a linkability to the data uh, of the individuals while anonymization permanently removes the linkability so that's the difference so whereas the other option gives you sort of confusing words but uh, pseudonymization still falls under the scope of gdpr because it's only a temporary action on the data where you are trying to remove the linkability but still have a golden copy of the data or the data can always be reconstructed to the original form whereas when you see anonymization it's a permanent uh, 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 removal of linkability right we are ensuring the data can never reconstructed to the original form so that's the key difference between your pseudonymization and anonymization again it's a very important concept under gdpr all right uh, so answer is c okay so apart from this i have mentioned few questions which which uh, i have not framed a q and a type but i feel these are the questions which are very very important uh, which you also need to be very sure about this uh, before going to the exam right 
so what are the conditions for using legitimate interest as a lawful basis right so you should be uh, doing a legitimate uh, interest assessment we call it as lia right under lia you need to uh, uh, first identify it's a valid legitimate interest and then you have to do a necessity and proportionality test and third we call it as a balancing test which is like trying to ensure that uh, uh, it will not be overpowered by the rights and freedom of data subject so this is something we call part of the question number 2 also so when do we use legitimate interest as a lawful basis sorry i jumped into question number 2 question number 1 in terms of when we use as a legitimate interest what are the examples and also if can we use it to transfer data outside eea it becomes slightly tricky to use this as a international data transfer uh, in although it's one of the exemptions which is called out under the gdpr law but what you need to remember is that if you are trying to use legitimate interest you need to explicitly notify to the data subject as well as to the supervisory authority and it can be only used on a less frequent use cases it cannot be the uh, most uh, a default way of doing a international data transfer this is very very important if you are using legitimate interest for transferring data outside the this condition has to be fulfilled similarly what legitimate interest assessment steps i think i already covered that uh authority who monitors monitors personal data processing of eu bodies anyone wants to give a try what is the question answer to question number 3 authority who monitors personal data processing of eu bodies european union entities question number 3 this shows our preparation isn't it that's the reason i brought these set of questions so what is the answer to question number 3 supervisory authority data protection authority is all what we know who actually manages uh, uh data subjects as well as controllers and processor the question here is authority who monitors personal data processing of eu entities you remember the word edps european data protection supervisor edps right so that's authority who monitors personal data processing of eu entities correct yeah so that's the answer to the question number 3 so what additional information should be provided to data subject when data collected from indirect source so question number 4 again i would like to see who remembers this so what additional information should be provided to data subject when data collected from indirect source so whenever we are collecting information from direct source you have uh, around 7 to 8 set of information which has to be provided part of your privacy notice right so when you collect the data from a indirect source what additional information has to be provided that's the question so the answer to the question is the source of the data as well as the categories of uh, the the sorry the correct the different categories of personal data right what are the different attributes are collected from a third party source so this these kind of questions are really interesting and important you should definitely have a clear picture in mind next question is what are the different powers of supervisory authority granted in gdpr so you have three important powers uh, uh, vested in gdpr vested by uh, in supervisory authority under gdpr the first is your advisory role uh, we remember during a dpia when you see a high uh, uh, residual risk right in that they have to consult the supervisory authority so that's an example of advisory role uh, advisory power the second is your investigative power 
so uh, supervisory authority can invoke this to check uh, or try to get access to all the documents including records of processing activity policies procedures dpi etc so this is your investigative power third is corrective power whenever they feel there is some drawback sorry whenever they they see that controllers or processor have infringed the requirements of gdpr they may give a penalty or sometimes they can just reprimand with a warning so these are the different powers which are there in uh, for supervisory authority under gdpr when can you charge data subject for a access right so you cannot charge any fee towards a data subject but whenever a data subject makes a repeated request unfounded request right and it's clearly a motivated request in those cases there is a provision for you to uh, charge a small administrative fee but this has to be clearly documented if you are going to be challenged you need to show uh, on what basis did you decide it's a unfounded request right so controller specific obligations we have uh, uh, i have emphasized this topic controller specific obligation and processor specific obligation right doing a dpia doing a, a, a implementing privacy by design and default right and also data breach notification data subject rights fulfillment all these are controller specific obligation right this is something which is very important from the exam perspective similarly processor unique obligations include always working only on written instruction which is or having a contract in place processor should always take a written approval before engaging a process a processor this is also a unique responsibility right and uh, uh, these are something which is very specific to the processor right there are some common obligations which are there for controller and processor which we discussed in one of the questions right so uh, like technical and organizational measures appointing a dpo right and maintaining records of processing activity but under records of processing activity you see a difference between the controller records and processor records because a processor records is limited not compared to the controller records because uh, purpose of the personal data retention period uh, the basic recipients of the data sometimes all these things are somewhere confined especially the retention period purpose is usually determined only by the controller so these attributes are not decided by the processor right so th there's a difference even in the records of processing activity fields so this is something which you need to be mindful of uh question number 9 what data subject right is absolute in nature so any uh, 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 data subject rights are not absolute in nature the reason is it has to be balanced against certain criteria which includes your uh, uh, controllers legal obligation regulatory obligation sometimes uh, one's request can even infringe someone else's rights and freedom as well so there is a balancing act which is always to be looked at but one particular data subject rights which is absolute in nature is right uh, to object direct marketing when someone uh, objects to direct marketing there is no other option left out for the pro uh, controller or a processor they have to simply abide by it that is the reason that's a very specific obligation that uh, uh, which is absolute in nature right Tenth question also I discuss four step uh, test of personal data which is generally the material scope of GDPR. Uh, so generally what we discuss is uh, what is personal data, right? So any information relates to identified or identifiable natural person. So this is your uh, 
GDPR material scope, we also call it as a four-step test. So again, this is a very important part. So sometimes questions can test your opinions. Does it fall under GDPR? Does it also include your, uh, uh, for example, technology data, right? And uh, uh, all these things are usually tested in the exam form of scenario questions also. Can we charge administrative fee? The question is repeated, sorry. Difference between Council of Europe, European Council and Council of European Union. A very, very confusing topic. So if you have listened to my sessions, you will def uh, should be clearly thorough off. So Council of the Europe is a, uh, if I have to say, it's a special agreement. Okay, it's it's a treaty actually. The people who are uh, uh, who have ratified the uh, we call it as ECHI, European Convention of Human Rights. So whoever has adopted that and signed this and ratified in the legislation, they are all part of Council of Europe. They are 46 countries and there are 27 member states. All of them are also part of this Council of Europe. So Council of Europe is a territory representation. So that's a Council of Europe. Whereas European Council, okay, is something related to the strategic body. So European Council is uh, uh, meets every quarterly people. It comprises heads of state. So they just they are not a legislative body. They come to discuss something in terms of direction of the European Union. Council of the European Union. This is also called as the Council of EU, or sometimes we call it as the. Uh, council of Ministers or simply the Council. This is what I used to give an example of Rajya Sabha, right? So it is represented by the Ministers who represents the interest of their particular member state. So this is one of the very confusing topic in chapter 1. So this is something we can keep this always in your fingerprint if you are clear then you can probably crack those questions. Control specific obligations we discussed. Criteria for establishment right what constitutes an establishment this is again a very important question so we always use the word establishment establishment means you have to be an entity uh, registered in the territory or if you have human resource or if you have technical means uh, uh, to to do a processing activity so there is a combination of elements not necessary always you have to be an entity registered so that is not a specific requirement I think there is a uh, important court case that uh, led to this particular uh, verdict come from the Court of Justice of European Union this is something which you need to be having a clear idea condition for extraterritorial scope applicability which is article 32A uh, sorry 32B and 32C so whenever you are doing a targeted uh, goods or services to uh, uh, data subjects who happen to be in Europe, again if you are monitoring the human behavior of the data subjects who are there, who are there in Europe, so EU sorry, then extraterritorial scope applies. So this is something again uh, we have discussed lot of use cases, at least seven to eight different use cases we used to discuss in our session. Uh, processing of paper assets does it fall under GDPR? So again a very important exam question so not all paper assets falls under the scope of gdpr only paper assets which are part of filing system comes part of the uh, scope of gdpr what's a filing system so paper assets which are classified which are actually having adequate security measures which are usually uh, uh, part of uh, a process right so uh, ownership is defined Right, all these things uh, gives you the clue of whether that's part of a uh, the uh, applicability or not. 
concern attributes we discussed about it already uh, being specific uh, it should not be bundled and it should be freely given and it should be an unambiguous indication and also concern can be reversed at any point of time these are some of the important concern attributes uh, gdpr requirements when data collected from indirect source which we discussed already the two important data sets that has to be provided and also there is a timeline attached to that whenever you are uh, collecting the data from an indirect source when you have to give a privacy notice you have to give within a 30 days time period or whenever you make the first communication this is also a very important exam topic different data privacy strategy that is used in notices we have layered privacy notice we have a concept uh, called as your uh, time uh, just in time notices we have privacy dashboards right and we have digital icons so these are some of the different uh, uh, data privacy notice strategies interplay between data subject rights and lawful basis is a very very important exam topic so as i told you data subject rights are not absolute in nature there are situations where data subject rights cannot be implemented because a certain lawful basis prohibits that so that interplay is a very important chart which i would have given you part of my session if you have joined my session you would have seen that otherwise these topics are really critical from the exam perspective and infringement that attracts highest penalty under gdpr any core concepts for example your principles of gdpr data subject rights consent requirement international data transfer right or uh, uh, any any instruction given by the supervisory authority or local member state law these are the five to six instances if you infringe that you will get the highest penalty for all other aspects you will get the lower slab of penalty so what is a trigger for a dpo and a dpia so it looks very similar but there is a good difference between dpo and dpia so in what conditions you need to appoint a dpo and in what conditions you have to do a dpia so these are some of the very important questions which i was just drafting while uh, for this particular session right